That was Well You Needn't from Les Liaisons Dangereuses 1960, an album of previously unreleased music by Thelonious Monk that came out last year. The man who helped produce that album, Zev Feldman, is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to episode 27 of the Burning Ambulance podcast. This is the first episode of year two of the show, and I want to thank everyone who's been listening so far and supporting us. Uh, The Burning Ambulance podcast is part of the Osiris Network, which has over two dozen shows on a variety of subjects, including music, literature, craft brewing, parenting, comedy, and more. Visit OsirisPod.com to check out all their shows and see which ones appeal to you. One of the newest shows is Dark Blue, hosted by Jeffrey Rickley of the band Thursday. He uh, talks to his fellow musicians about their lives and how they've dealt with trauma, health issues, and other things. So maybe give that a listen and see if it's for you. If you want to become a supporter of the Burning Ambulance podcast, please go to patreon.com slash burningambulance. This is the first episode of this show not to feature an interview with a musician. Instead, as I mentioned, I'm talking to Zev Feldman, who's a producer working primarily with the Resonance label. Resonance has been around for 10 years and has mostly specialized in releasing archival music by legendary jazz artists. Their first big release was Echoes of Indiana Avenue by guitarist Wes Montgomery. It uh, featured some previously unheard early recordings, and they've subsequently done several other albums of his music, including a live concert recorded on his only European tour in 1965. We're going to hear a little bit of music from that later in the episode. They've also put out albums by Stan Getz, Charles Lloyd, Bill Evans, Larry Young, and John Coltrane, among many others, and Zev is the guy who actually travels the world, locating these lost recordings and putting in all the legwork to get them licensed, make sure they've got the rights, and do everything else that leads to the physical release. The thing that makes Resonance releases so great, by the way, is that they're not just about slapping the music out there. They have really in-depth liner notes, tons of historical photographs, interviews with the surviving musicians or people connected to the recordings in some way, and just beautiful packages overall. They're really all about preserving the love of physical music formats. They do a lot of special releases for Record Store Day every year, pulling out the vinyl versions before the CD version and stuff like that. They don't just release archival music either. They also put out CDs by new artists, and Zev and I talk a little bit about that in this interview too. We also discuss some of the non-resonance work he's done, 
like the Thelonious Monk record, and a big project he did the other year, reissuing 25 titles from the jazz label Xanadu Records, a small 70s label that really deserves much more attention than it's ever gotten. I'm going to play another piece of music right now. This is Grant Green doing a cover of James Brown's I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing from a two-CD set from earlier this year called Funk in France. And later in the show, you'll hear tracks from Wes Montgomery, Bill Evans, Larry Young, John Coltrane, and guitarist Andreas Ferrati, who's one of the living artists Resonance is working with. He's a young guitar player who's doing really interesting work, and Zev and I talk about him a little toward the end of the show. Anyway, here's that Grant Green song, and after that, you'll hear my conversation with Zev Feldman. All right, so you've been in the music business for a lot of years, I think. So tell me how you got your start and talk about some of the places that you've worked over the years before, you know, coming to Resonance. Sure. Well, I'm really lucky. I think, first of all, the most important thing, I have to say, sometimes you're just lucky in life if you find a passion, something that just interests you and captivates you. And music has been that way for me my whole life, you know, listening to music and 
you know, just going crazy and reading books, and it's just been the center of my universe. And um, when I was in, uh, you know, out of high school, I was trying to find ways of connecting a passion for my love of music and a possible future. And I got to tell you, I was so scared. There were times where I thought I was just going to slip through the, the cracks of life, man, and just... Um, I was nervous about my future, and I said, well, my first, my first uh, stab at trying to become self-aware was, hey, maybe I should be working on radio, play music, hey, that sounds really cool. So I became a communications broadcasting major out of high school, and I went to a school named Montgomery College. It's a community college, technically, although it's got a fantastic reputation in near my hometown of Rockville, Maryland. And um, we all had shifts at our school station and, and we all had jobs. At the, at the station of mine was the music director and I used to have to call the record companies and have them send us music. We're talking around 1993. And um, the folks at Polygram at the time uh, just seemed they had A&M and Mercury Records and all these other labels and I was constantly getting them to send me CDs to play at my station or concert tickets and all sorts of things. And one day, after going to this one office a few times to pick up stuff, or they said, would you ever consider coming to do an internship for us? Internship? Oh, my God, that sounds really exciting. So, wow, you're coming to work for a record company? Yeah, you're going to work in this. You'll see how, you know, working in sales and marketing, distribution, there's radio promotion people here. It's a branch. And at this time in the music business, there were branches all around the country. At Polygram, they were in Boston, New York. There were people who worked from homes in Philadelphia, office in D.C., Atlanta, Miami, Texas, Dallas, Houston, Minneapolis, all over the states. And that's how large the infrastructure was for the music business at the time. Mm-hmm. So I had a privilege in my career of working for a few different branches, but I was first an intern for Polygram Records in 1994, and I ended up befriending one of the sales and marketing executives for Island Records. I'll never forget, they had a Marianne Faithful CD signing at a Borders Books and Music store in uh, Rockville, near where we lived. And uh, everyone at the time wanted to go, uh, you know, there was a company convention from one of our retailers happening at the time, Kemp Mill Music, and I remember everyone in the office was so preoccupied with that. Well, I was the guy that raised my hand, Marianne Faithful in store. I mean, I love, besides being a jazz hound, I'm a huge classic rock fan. I love all sorts of music. And I was excited to do a Marianne Faithful event. I was the only guy from my office aside from the sales exec from the label that turned out. <laughs> and um, I remember driving to the event. I had this old 87 Buick Century. I remember the brakes were out of my car. I'm using the emergency brake to park. A friend of mine followed me. I just remember it was just a wreck then. And I was the only guy that showed up. And the guy, the sales exec at the time, took me out to dinner afterwards. And he says, listen, what do you want to do? I said, I want to work in jazz and classical music, man. I said, I love that. He said, really? That's not a very popular uh, area. I said, oh, well, for me it is. So a few months go by. The guy comes down from New York, 
Uh, he says, hey, Zev, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm great. He says, you know what, man? There's a new job position open in New York for a classical and jazz account service representative. I've already told the branch manager about you. Uh, his name is Rodney Mateo. He's expecting to hear from you. Give him a call. And I stood there like a deer in the headlights. He looks at me straight in the, straight on. He says, you said you wanted to move to New York and work in jazz and classical, right? I said, yes, yes, yes. I'm on it. I'll give him a call. And I surfed with the politics in the office, eventually involving my boss there. And I, I went up for two job interviews. I got it. I moved to New York the following January of 95. I'm 21 years old. I'm living in a little studio apartment in, in uh, Forest Hills, Queens, on my own for the first time, like a big boy, and learning life. And it was amazing. And I lived in New York in the early 90s, well, 1995 to around 1999. And at Polygram, I got to represent jazz and classical music in an incredible period in the music when the resurgence of that term, the Young Lions, was happening. And Verve had Nicholas Payton and Mark Whitfield and Christian McBride and you know, and and it was in Herbie and Wayne, Abby Lincoln, Shirley Horn. Mm-hmm. Incredible mm-hmm. time. I remember I went to uh, the sh- uh, there was a show at Town Hall in about '97 that was Joe Henderson's trio, Charlie Hayden's Quartet West, and the Kansas City Big Band from the Robert Why Altman movie. Why did you movie. say hello? I was there. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was the Verve Jazz Fest tour. Yep. Yep. I remember that, yeah. That was really cool. We had tour dates up and down the East Coast, I recall. I went to the dates in New York, Philly, and at Lisner Auditorium in Washington. But seeing Joe Henderson, man, with George Mraz and Al Foster, that was pretty great, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's the early 90s. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, hang, I'm a merchandiser. I'm making displays in Tower Records and HMV, dealing with Manhattan retail for jazz and classical. And I'm out five to six nights a week listening to music, meeting my heroes every night in the jazz club and working in the music business and getting an education on how it really operates out there in the field. And I did that job for a few years. I eventually became a uh, a regional marketing rep covering retail from Maine to Northern Virginia for jazz and classical. And I did that for a few years, which was exciting. Sometimes I would go on the road with Nicholas Payton or with Whitfield where we would do like, you know, meet and greets with all the retailers and dinners and, hey, let's solicit that new album and get the support out. And these were the things that we did and artist development, marketing. And uh, and then came the merger between Polygram and Universal Seagrams. Mm-hmm. And no one knew what was going to happen. And a strange thing happened. I got a phone call one day. Uh, from a colleague of mine that said, you know, Rhino Records is looking for a sales and marketing regional for New York and Boston. You know those customers, and you're a total record nerd. And I ended up interviewing and going to work there in, in 1998 as the Northeast Regional Sales Manager, and I was there for a few months. And then I, uh, what happened was I bumped into a colleague of mine outside a Ringo Starr concert at the Beacon. And he says, listen, are you happy over there? Because I got this job I'm trying to fill in Washington, D.C., your old hometown, doing jazz and classical sales for this newly formed Universal Music Group, which is now going to include ECM. 
Zev, wouldn't your mom and dad love to see you more? <laughs> and I ended up, and I ended up taking the job. You know, not even I didn't even interview for it. I raised my hand and they moved me to Washington. I was back home and I was there for six and a half years working with every kind of personality possible of doing this sales job, working with all these regional and national accounts, Borders, Best Buy, Walmart. And um, I had a chance to really, I was lucky. I had a boss that took me under his wing and allowed me to work, get a lot of national account exposure and mm. build more experience. And I was a salesman for Universal for six and a half years. And then in uh, 2005, I got recruited to be the national uh, director of retail sales and catalog, uh, catalog, national director of catalog sales and retail marketing for Concord Music Group. So I went out there. Tell me about Resonance, because they've been around for 10 years. So tell me what the concept was behind the label and how you came on board. I'm really lucky, man. I, um, well, the, the Resonance Records was started by George Clavin in 2008. And uh, 2007, I believe, actually, the first records came out in 2008. And, uh, you know, it's a nonprofit foundation, very unique structure. You know, George was trying to find ways of preserving mainstream jazz and, you know, working with artists that he was mentoring and producing. He was trying to actually, uh, you know, before make recordings and have the recordings, you know, for artists to take the labels, but it wasn't happening. So he started a label. And I had gotten a phone call from a colleague of mine, Don Lukoff, who I've known for a very long time, a publicist that many people know, great guy. Mm-hmm. Who said to me, there's this guy, George Klebenzev, you know, he's looking for someone he really needs help with, his distribution. Well, you know what that's all about. I say, sure. So in, uh, we first spoke in November of 2008, and in May of 2009, I joined the Resonance team doing distribution. And shortly after, George says to me one day, he says, Ed, let me understand something. So you know all this stuff, you're a record collector, you worship this music but you've never produced a record before i said that's absolutely correct i have not he says i'm going to do something about that tell you what i'm going to do if you can find me recordings that are previously an issue from artists that i like or ones that we agree would be good to put out you can you can produce it for me how does that sound and that was all I needed to hear. It was like fire on gasoline, as I like to tell people. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, my passion just really ignited even more, and I just found myself expanding lots of energy, reaching out to artists, families, colleagues, uh, archives, anyone I could think of who might have tapes.
five titles with Montgomery that start all the way at the beginning of his career and then the most recent one was the live album from Paris so did they bring you a lot of that material or did you dig it up yourself I mean I know the Parisian recording is a like sort of a commonly bootlegged show that you were giving legitimate release to but some of the others you know like where did they come from well, a lot of it has just been from asking around. The recordings from France come from the Ina archives. It's actually a division of the French government and the cultural affairs. Man, the French have done such a wonderful job documenting uh, recordings that were made for radio and television, and they have a vast archives. And Resonance Records has been working with Ina for about the last three to four years now. We put out Larry Young in Paris in 2016. We put out the West Montgomery in Paris release uh, in, in uh, 2018. And also uh, this year we put out Grant Green, Funk in France. So we've got this partnership which has been evolving, really rescuing these tapes that are just sitting on shelves, performing all the needed necessary clearances mm-hmm. so i've been working with the french government we've been finding those tapes but a lot of it you know with west montgomery's family 
I also had a chance to uh, work with a couple of other archives. Um, first of all, in the process of working on the Echoes of Indiana Avenue release, I got a chance to know uh, Anne Montgomery, the widow of Buddy Montgomery, Wes's brother. Mm-hmm. And she had copies of tapes that a family friend had had, a gentleman uh, named Phil Call, who had followed Wes and his brothers around. He was actually at the time a college student at Butler University in Indiana. And we acquired the tape reels and did the official release of that, which was wonderful, and put together this wonderful release that became in the beginning. And, you know, we've had a chance now to do five releases. We are four releases, rather. We're about ready to do a fifth which is going to be called uh, Wes's Best, which is a compilation which includes some previously unissued material of Wes recorded in the 50s. It's going to come out in February. Mm-hmm. And we are working on also our next Wes Montgomery archival release, which we don't have a title yet, but we have about two CDs, three LPs worth of previously unissued late 50s West material from Indiana, and in fact, it is the same material which is the source of Echoes of Indiana Avenue. Mm-hmm. So it's um, we've, we're just currently putting together all the pieces right now, doing some due diligence and sound restoration work, and lining up some of the paperwork and all the things that we need to do. But it looks like that'll come out next April for Record Store Day, God willing. So. Nice. Uh, we're very excited. I mean, the, the, the partnership with Wes Montgomery's family is very exciting. Um, Wes is one of my heroes. I used to listen to my father play his records when I was growing up. So he's kind of like, you know, he's big in my home mm-hmm. growing up. It's like family. These things really have a lot of special meaning. I think working with the families has just been such a, um, a wonderful part of the job, really a, a privilege. Thank you. 
done three albums so far by Bill Evans also. Two of those are with a like a somewhat overlooked trio with Eddie Gomez and Jack DeJanette. Mm-hmm. What do you think, as a listener, what do you think sets that trio apart from his other work, given that he was one of those guys who relied on a fairly small book for most of his career? You know, it was like a few originals and a, a group of standards that he really liked, so... I think there was something really interesting. I think Mark Myers refers to it. I remember him saying it was his percussive period. You know, Jack DeJanet obviously has a very different style per se or uh, sound versus, let's say, Marty Morell or Paul Modian. You know, I mean, there is just very interesting dynamics with a lot of Bill's trios. And I think that was something that really made bill's music so special um with all these different groups i mean they are all very very special and you know i was having a conversation with george clavin and for a guy like bill evans who played a lot of the same songs many times over and over in his career in concert he certainly found ways of making them interesting and brought inspiration to him and he's just an incredible incredible force in this music and 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 his music still continues to inspire people um, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, I think the recordings that we found with Mr. Dijonette, uh it was just very extraordinary to be able to expand the discography of that group. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I was a big fan of the uh, Bill Evans Live at Montreal recording, like a lot of us, and, uh, you know, it's really, it's really cool. I will tell you what I hope we can also find. It would be... Uh, be wonderful. I think originally when they uh, recorded the live at Montreux record, there was actually, it was filmed for television. The tapes have been missing. I've been trying to find those for years too. And um, anyways, it's it's exciting. So at Resonance Records, uh, we're working on a brand new Bill Evans release that we're slotting for next uh, spring, which will be called Tentatively Evans in England, live at Ronnie Scott's. Mm-hmm. And we have recordings from 68 with Marty Morell that were made. Uh, it seems that they are December of 68 uh, with Eddie Gomez and Marty Morell. And it's a lot of wonderful music. And what I would say about that band with, with Eddie Gomez and Marty Morell, besides the fact that it was the longest working group that bill had is that when you listen to these recordings which folks are going to hear for the very first time it's really evident uh of the spark and the chemistry and the connection that exists between bill eddie and marty it's it's really inspiring and in 68 this was the beginning of a of a many year romance i think it was seven years they played together for Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't wait for this to come out. I mean, we are still finding incredible Bill Evans music that the world hasn't heard, and he has so many more gifts to share. So I'm really happy to be uh, working with Bill Evans' family and, and, uh, and bringing that into the world officially. That'll be coming out next year.
young set I love and that was pulled from the archives in Paris like you were saying was that everything or did you release some tracks and leave others behind what you know what was the story there because it seems like there are certain sessions where there was only like one track from that day on the on the discs so I'm curious you know how much more there was well we I have to tell you we really scooped everything that had a peep of Larry Young on it. I think we got everything. I want to say, for the record, a lot of these recordings from that album, and and thanks for acknowledging it. You know, it was a very uh, personal project for me uh, because Larry Young is a musician who I've admired, respect, respected dearly, and researched and admired since I was in my early twenties. And I just, you know, I just think he's just he was amazing. And um, there. <laughs> It's just amazing what he did. There was only one Larry Young. There are a lot of different types of organ players with different styles, but he was one of a kind, and in many ways he did music that also transcended audiences, and I'm a big fan. So when we set out, we, we, you know, we reached out to Ina, and I found out that there were recordings. Now, we had recordings that were made when Larry was a sideman with the Nathan Davis Quartet, and we've included a lot of that material. But there is also, you know, there's a solo piano track from there, or with a trio, I should say, and and there's jam sessions, and we went through and we found all these different recordings that Larry appeared on, jam sessions, groups, sideman, and that is the music that makes up Larry Young in Paris. It's the complete recordings that we have from his time there, and you know, he lived there for a period. He played regularly there and we're talking about with like Nathan Davis and Woody Shaw and Billy Brooks but um, man to be able to unearth this kind of music especially for like fans out there like myself I think it was a really big deal I'm very proud about that package and George Clayton he allowed me to run wild with this one <laughs> and we just you know it's a massive booklet I think it's a 72 page book for the CD version alone the vinyl has the same size booklet. And by the way, I think I've got several hundred copies on the floor of our warehouse. So anyone who's listening would like the LP edition. Don't be shy. Raise your hand. Come on down. <laughs> uh, but uh, but but that 
that project was really pushing the limits in terms of what is the best we can do for Larry Young. There's never been a book written on him, and I felt that that was going to become our closest opportunity to do that. So working with even Woody Shaw the third, Larry Young the third, obviously, and even constructing a proper bio on who he was, uh, you know, it told the story of his life. I, I felt that that was very important work for us to do, and we had a responsibility. And George, man, was wonderful and about it and supportive, and he said, go do it. So we did it, mm-hmm. and, and there you have it, and um, I'm really proud about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the uh, the Thelonious Monk record, uh, Les Liaisons Dangereuses, that one, I don't, was that a resonance title or not? It's actually not a resonance title. Les Liaisons is a partnership between Saga Jazz and Sam Records in Paris. And that project has a really interesting story, Phil. It's actually, man, it's just, uh, it's, it's international... Uh, jazz folklore. I'm trying to just think of the how to describe it. It was such an interesting experience for me. I was in uh, Paris. I think it was December of 2015 or 2016, and I was there on business. And I remember getting an email one morning. This, dear Mr. Feldman, my name is Fred Tomas. It's nice to meet you. We haven't met before, but uh, we know you're in town. We've heard, and we'd like to meet with you because we have found a previously unissued studio session of Thelonious Monk from 1959. Now, let me tell you, Phil, (laughs) when I got that email, I think, like, my eyes, like, literally just, like, jumped out of my head. It was like something out of a Tom and Jerry cartoon. (laughs) I just couldn't even believe what I was reading. I mean, you know, we find so many live recordings oftentimes, and, and, and there's a lot of live material which circulates out there. Mm-hmm. But to find a studio session was a rare thing, and I had a chance uh, of collaborating with these two gentlemen, um, which was, you know, Francois Alexon of Saga Jazz and Fred Tomas of uh, Sam Records. And we, you know, uh, we originally went to Resonance to see if Resonance wanted to put it out. And there were some complications. This is just a matter of doing business. And, you know, and, and sometimes things are a fit and sometimes they're not. And we all decided, including residents, that residents would step aside on this one. But the gentleman asked me, Zeb, would you still come work with us on it? And I said, absolutely. I'm very lucky. I have an arrangement with Mr. Claben. I'm an independent contractor. I work with a variety of different record labels doing outside production out of residence, so I was fortunate to have the freedom to take this assignment, and I did it, and it was really one of the greatest journeys of my career, and uh, just a really important project, you know, uh, adding another uh, chapter in Monk's legacy and being able to celebrate it, and um, really happy with the way that turned out, and... um, yeah, yeah, really special. Yeah. Because it's such a it's a unique band because it's the only one with you know, with those two saxophonists on it. So it's like that's the only time he recorded with that lineup. It really is like a, a really valuable piece of the puzzle. I feel the same way. One of the things that made this project special to me also was there was a little bit of jazz injustice done about a legacy of a guy who was a jazz impresario in France. And these sessions are 
are a, a result of, of, of his work. His name was Marcel Romano, and he was a jazz producer and, and put on concerts, booked music in France, and he often worked with different filmmakers. Elevators to the Gallows he was involved with as an example, mm-hmm. and with the case of this uh, project was the one that brought Monk together to the forefront and suggested he, he does the soundtrack to this film. And uh, Romano is a really inspirational guy to me, and it was also something for us to celebrate, not to mention Monk's incredible genius and legacy, but, you know, getting a chance to tip the hat to Romano as well that doesn't get talked about and mentioned as much. So that was very special. also worked on the John Coltrane release offering live at Temple University. So yeah, did, tell yeah. me about that. that. How much work had to be done on the audio for that album in particular? Because it seemed like it was a pretty <laughs> rough recording, but it sounds amazing on the final release. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a, wow, what a, what a great experience that was. And what an honor to work with, you know, on work contributing towards the legacy of John Coltrane. Um, Basically, in 2012, I had been in touch with the nice folks over at Universal Music Group, 
and um, we, we, we work, I work with these individuals doing clearances and other work, and they've been very supportive of Residence's mission, and they were looking for a partner to, a third party to release this music with together, and they asked Residence if we would be interested, and it took us a, a little bit just to make sure we negotiated the terms and had everything done, but we were able to put an agreement together for Resonance to have the honor to release this in in partnership with uh, Universal Music Enterprises. And, um, you know, we got these tapes. It was actually my good friend, Yasuhiro Fujioka, uh, who was featured in the, in the recent film Chasing Train, the documentary on John Coltrane. Fuji, as we all know him, uh, was at a recording engineers conference, and uh, he was giving a lecture on John Coltrane, and at the end of the lecture, he says, does anybody in this room know of any previously unissued John Coltrane tapes? And up comes the hand of Michael Beale, who went to Temple University, worked at WRTI, and recorded the original concert. And he had had the actual tape reels for all these years. What's so interesting is that, you know, this was originally a broadcast on back in 66, mm -hmm. and uh, some of the music had been recorded by somebody over the airwaves that came out as this bootleg overseas, very limited release, but it was a bootleg that came out with a portion of the music. Well, now the whole tape existed. So we were able to have this complete concert. And uh, thanks to Fuji, Michael Beale, everyone at Universal Music Enterprises, including Harry Weinger, uh, Ashley Kahn, uh, and uh, Gene Zakarowitz, we were able to work together with Resonance and, of course, George Klaben to make this mission possible. And it ended up winning a Grammy. It was extraordinary. Now, as far as the sound goes and restoration, Universal and Resonance work together. Uh, I couldn't really speak to the exact specifications that were done, quote-unquote, to improve it. But I'd say for a great extent, what you have is what you got, what was recorded that night. And uh, it was a very, you know, you know, a very important concert. This was the, the concert, the one time that Michael Brecker claims that he saw Coltrane was at this show. Mm -hmm. Anyways, we, we've been really lucky at Resonance. We've had a lot of exciting journeys that we go on with this music, and that was probably one of the most exciting exciting including a grammy win how often do you get to say that so lucky yeah yeah now this year you put out two albums by grant green the funk in france which you mentioned yes. and then the oil can harry's live set yes. also yes. where did that second set of recordings come from the recordings from slick live at oil can harry's i was introduced to those recordings because i was visiting michael cascuna at Mosaic Records about a year or so ago. I think this was the summer of 2017. And he handed me a CD. We went out to lunch and he says, you know, I was going through some things and I found this disc that was sent to me from some years back. Maybe it would interest you. And it was of Grant recorded at this club, Oil Can Harry's. And I had recently, uh, before that, befriended uh, this uh, gentleman uh, Gary Barclay, who was the DJ at W, or he was QCD FM in Vancouver, and he was the one that was the host of the event and 
and he was involved with the recording of this these recordings and I had already known met him and we listened to these recordings and they were unlike anything else I'd ever heard Grant Green perform before mm-hmm. it was really about this evolution of funk music with him and it was um I thought it was extraordinary. I mean, there was now's the time, and he's doing how's insensitive, and I think that that stylistically, that will you know lock with a lot of people. Very familiar, sounds like Grant Green, and then he does this 32-minute medley of Ohio players, Bobby Womack, and Gamble and Hop, and all the stuff, uh, Vulcan Princess, Stanley Clark. And you hear this side of him that no one had ever heard before. And I had to listen to this recording a a bunch of times. I kept listening to it, and I I kept hearing different things in it. And I just kept coming back to, boy, if I was a Grant Green fan, I felt that that's something that should come out. I've never heard Grant play like that. And Mm -hmm. we were fortunate. We had an interview that Gary Barclay did where in the interview, you know, Grant's talking about this new direction. I want to connect with a younger audience and a wider audience. And I like this music. This is what I'm listening to. So it was really interesting. And instead of just putting out Funk in France, I said, hey, George Claben, why don't we put out these two projects together at the same time? And why don't we promote them together? And I said, you know, we can really make this a special event. For the Grant Green fans out there, this is going to be jubilation. Mm-hmm. You know, give people a reason to celebrate. But more than that, Phil, giving us a reason to talk about how Grant has really had this profound influence. You know, really a lot of it starts in the early 90s with the whole crate digger revolution, vinyl DJ, you know, LP DJs, people crate digging and going back and rediscovering, you know, his music, though, is just amazing. You know, um, He really was, Bob Porter, I believe, calls him a chameleon in his book, Soul Jazz. He played traditional jazz. He played organ trio. He played Latin. He played funk. He played gospel. He could play blues. He was very versatile. Mm -hmm. And he had all these different sides to him, which I think was great. And, um, you know, we were able to capture that. And to work with his family, again, was very exciting. And uh, Gregory Green, his son, a.k.a. Grant Green Jr., uh, worked with us very closely and did some interviews with him and for this, these packages. And, you know, hey, man, it was a chance for us to celebrate someone who matters. And, uh, you know, Grant Green's an inspiration, and we're celebrating his music. He's been gone since 1979, sadly, but uh, his music lives on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that medley was really fascinating to me because it was almost like because of the stuff that he was playing, it was almost like getting a glimpse into him as a person. Because you're like, wait a minute, Grant Green listens to Stanley Clark? You know, you get this, like, a, a side of them as not, you know, not just a performer, but as a human being in a way. Right. You know? Right. So, so you must spend a lot of time, like, either digging through or, like, negotiating with radio archive people in Europe, because it seems like there would be just a tremendous amount of unreleased material there, stuff that was on the radio and then never heard a second time. I'm, I'm always trying to expand my reach. Uh, there are a few archives that I still need to establish. Some t- 
contact with but you're you're right I'm, I'm I've been very fortunate working with some of these overseas institutions who often have the recordings and you know we're looking for stuff and uh, you know I want to encourage anyone that's out there listening to this maybe you have a friend you know someone that's got tapes lying under their bed or up in the attic hey reach out to me Facebook or uh, or email or whatever I'd, I'd uh, I'm 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 interested in this you know I'm trying to find homes for these recordings um, and oftentimes it's a lot of the times it's about lining up a really good fit between a certain record label where maybe some of the, one of the principals is a big fan of a certain artist and trying to reach out to that family and uh, you know putting these things together I, these productions they are mammoth under, undertakings uh, to, to put these projects together they take months and months and months sometimes years has been the case you also worked on a program of reissues of titles from the Xanadu label. It was like a straight catalog remastering kind of thing. So yeah. that's a label that's really only known to like hardcore jazz nerds. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that whole program came together? Well, I'm a hardcore jazz nerd, nerd that's for sure. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I've loved the Xanadu label for a very long time. And I've also greatly admired the label founder, and the guy who produced those sessions, his name is Don Schlitten. And if you're not familiar with that name, you can look at a lot of credits, and you'll find him on Prestige and, well, um, Prestige and Muse and uh, I think look, maybe Cobblestone. But the, po- but the point is, though, that Don was really one of the architects of jazz music. And um, this label was his vision. It was a mom-and-pop organization run with his wife, Nina. And um, he recorded artists who he loved, and he loved. And I love the music that's on that label, and I've been collecting the vinyls for years. And several years ago, uh, in my work with the Elemental Music label, uh, I was having a conversation with uh, some of the principals there. We were talking about Jordi Soleil, uh, co-owner of the company, and I were talking about uh, hey, what would be some really great record labels that we could reissue? What's out of print that's not on CD or digitally? What's not out there? And it's funny. I remember I digressed, and I was like, you know who I met last week? I went up and I met with Don Schlitten at his home in New York, and we were talking, and Jordy stops me. Zev, that's it. I said, what? Xanadu. That catalog is out of print, and that led to us on a whole... <laughs> You know, a whole mission, finding out who had the rights. It turned out it was the Orchard in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Xanadu catalog, Don Schlitten had sold it to E-Music in the early 1990s. And uh, E-Music then had just sat dormant. They had it for a very long time. It was then E-Music was acquired by the Orchard. And then the Orchard worked with us to do a deal to put out 25 of them on the elemental music label but there was a lot of work that had to go into that phil um unfortunately during hurricane sandy in 2012 uh, there was a flooding at the facility where the master tape reels were stored and some of them were destroyed uh, others uh which we wanted to use the source material for to do these reissues we had to have the tapes cleaned and outsourced and sent out and it was a uh, it was a major undertaking uh, also financially to have all this done and we worked with the orchard to do this 25 titles came out um and it was a mission i mean 
had such a challenge in front of us, even the art files, the negatives for the front and backs of the album covers, those were all washed away and destroyed in the flood. So we even had to recreate art using the original LPs that we had to have drum scanned and had to have designers fill in and make them look like they were brand new. There was a lot of work, a lot of work that went into that. It was important work. And, you know, thankfully now some of those essential recordings have been able to come back out again and have a life again. And that music is, is there. And it's, uh, you know, it was a great time. And, you know, it really captured a lot of great artists, a lot of bebop players, uh, what they were doing in the 70s in a period where fusion music was really dominating. Um, you know, a lot of ways in terms of what people's jazz habits were. I mean, the truth be told, a lot of these musicians, some of them were struggling, to, you know, weren't playing as much then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that catalog and even catalogs of like bigger labels, you know, like like Milestone from the 70s was like really holding things together in a way because, I mean, the records that they were putting out, you know, Sonny Rollins, McCoy Tyner, Joe Henderson, all that stuff, it was like nobody else was paying attention, you know? Well, I, I'm, I'm an enormous fan of these of, of, of the label and I'm, it's, it was really exciting working with Don and his wife on this endeavor and I really got to thank everyone at Elemental Music, especially Jordi Soleil and Carlos Augustin for getting behind it and, and um, it was great.
Resonance is best known as a reissue label, but you also put out new releases from time to time. So, and one of the ones that I want to talk about is Andreas Ferrati. Um, yes. Tell me a little bit about him and why he was a good fit for Resonance as far as like a new living artist. Well, at Resonance, like you said, we're really doing, George Clayben really wants to have a balance between living artists and archival recordings. We definitely have that identity on the, on the archival side. Um, but we're putting out living artists. We have Polly Gibbons, and we're going to have a new album from Wabi Rogan as well. We've had Christian Howes and Donald Vega in the past on our label, and a lot of great jazz from living artists. Um, the Andreas Verratti project is a good fit for Resonance. It really fits with the mission of what we're doing, having a balance between archival and living artists who are making jazz. The project came about, I've actually known the folks over uh, with Quincy Jones's camp for a number of years now, Adam Fell, Tomas Duport, and uh, a couple years ago I got a phone call from them. And uh, their friends, we got together, had lunch, and in this conversation, they were telling me about this incredible guitar player who Quincy had signed, also managing Andreas. And, um, and I said, hey, let me check it out. And um, I sent the music to George Clavin, and he knew instantly. He's like, I've been watching this guy on YouTube for years. He was excited. George knew all about him. Andreas is an incredible virtuoso and talent. And he really has been uh, building, you know, he, you know his his uh, how should I say it? You know, he's been making more music and getting out there and doing his thing. Uh, but he's a really incredibly talented guitar player and an artist who has a voice and is making music and producing his own records, as is the case with this new recording we have. And we just felt that, you know, he fit in perfectly at our organization. And, you know, we have been, you know, very proud to partner uh, to put out that record with him and with Quincy's folks. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very, very exciting for us. And uh, it's a great record, too. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a bunch of standards. You know, he has a, a voice and, and he, he knows what, he's, what he wants. And there's just something really exciting about that, I think. I think he's going to be making music if he chooses to for a very long time to come. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned a few titles that you've got coming up for 2019. So, I mean, obviously you guys are moving forward and looking, you know, looking at the next 10 years, I guess. Oh, man, I hope so, man. Uh, I'll, t I'll take it. You know, we, we are. I want to tell you, we have a bunch of exciting projects coming up first of which is Eric Dolphy's Musical Prophet, the expanded 1963 New York studio sessions. Now this is going to come out on November 23rd for uh, Record Store Day's Black Friday retail event as part of a 3LP gatefold edition. And then we're going to put out the CD and digital, uh, also a three CD set on January 25th. And uh, these recordings capture Eric Dolphy in 63 when he's recording the very important yet often overlooked albums the iron man and uh conversations mm -hmm. and um you know this was music with richard davis and woody shaw sonny simmons bobby hutcherson and these 
this is really important music in the timeline of Eric as a recording artist and his trajectory. You know, basically these recordings follow everything that he had done at Prestige New Jazz, and right before he records Out to Lunch, and he was evolving as far as an artist, and he was just a virtuosic talent. He was only 36 years old when he passed away, but these two albums. Unfortunately, they've just never had the, the celebration that they should have had all these years. And we're trying to trying to right that wrong. And um, the tapes came about because uh, back in the 1970s, James Newton befriended uh, Hale and Juanita Smith, who were very close friends of Eric's. And before Eric went to the airport off to Europe in 1964, he stopped by his friends in Hale and Juanita to give them a suitcase that he had had, which housed some of his most personal and prized possessions. Uh, the way I understand it at the time, I don't believe Eric was living in the, in the greatest of conditions in terms of a fancy place or anything, and I'm sure he had to take these belongings with him for safekeeping to make sure nothing would happen. So he hands this suitcase off to Hale and Juanita, he goes to Europe, and we obviously know the sad story. He passes away over there. They open up the suitcase, and they find all of the sheet music and charts and all sorts of interesting ephemera. And then there is all of the tape reels. There was about seven and a half hours of tape reels that they were holding on to that he had in his possession, and they are the complete sessions for uh, the complete session for the conversations Iron Man and also the music that became the album Other Aspects mm -hmm. that came out on Blue Note in 1987-88. We decided not to put out that material, but there uh, out that those takes, but there are a couple of outtakes, recordings of Muses, for instance, that are included. Um, but, you know, we, we, we I want to say that we did not just want to jam out any previously unissued material, now, there's 85 minutes worth that's never been released before. Now, these are studio recordings. This is the first previously unissued studio material to come out since the late 1980s, officially. Mm -hmm. This is done with partnership with the Eric Dolphy Trust and with Alan Douglas's family. And this is a top-notch production, a 100-page book wow. included. I'm going to just shoot off some of the names here off the top of my head. Nicole Mitchell, uh, David Murray, uh, Oliver Lake, Henry Threadgill, Steve Coleman, D Bill Laswell, Han Bennett, Joe Chambers, Richard Davis, Sonny Simmons. I interviewed Sonny Rollins. And we have just this, and there are more other names as well. A lot of great folks contributed. I wanted people that were influenced by him, and I also wanted people that knew him. Mm -hmm. And we have done wacky photo research yielding some incredible, incredible images that are being published in many time cases here, I think, for the very first time. And this is a total celebration of this genius, and I'm, I'm so happy. It's a culmination of four years' worth of work, but my co-producer on this project is the great flautist James Newton. Wow. And he was the one that had had these tapes all those years ago. And... Um, I was introduced to James because I was at the Monterey Jazz Festival four years ago, and I'm hanging out, talking with one of my colleagues, explaining that 
George Clayman sending me out looking for tapes. Really? Hey, there's Jason Moran across the room. You should go talk to him. Jason says, oh, yeah, you're looking for some tapes? I know someone with some Eric Dolphy recordings. Would you like to hear those? I said, oh, yeah, of course. So Jason and I kept in touch. He introduces me to James Newton, and the rest is history. Four years in the making later. So I'm very happy to share this. We're really proud at Resonance. And um, anyways, trying to rewrite the uh, history books here on, uh, on our friend there. Okay, that was my interview with Zev Feldman of Resonance Records, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is, as I said earlier, part of the Osiris Podcast Network, so visit osirispod.com to check out some of their other shows, and visit uh, Burning Ambulance's Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance if you would like to help support the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Oh, Cyrus.